-hmm. Right. Okay, so let's now finally get into Pico Economics because you've already alluded to this uh, in an early answer uh, and you refer to the fact that perhaps this would be the best approach in economics to really study the individual agent. So could you uh, elaborate a little bit more on that and also tell us which are the main aspects that Pico Economics focus on? Right. So let me start by saying that I am not, when I, when I emphasize pico-economics, I'm not urging that economists in general should take it up. Mm -hmm. I've already stressed that I think the main concerns of economists are social concerns rather than concerns about the way individuals work. And to that extent, most economists uh, can now and will be able to go on living their whole lives in um, blissful ignorance of pico-economics. So I'm not suggesting pico-economics should take center stage in the discipline as a whole. Uh, what I do think is uh, there is value to be had often in applying some of the conceptual distinctions and some of the modeling approaches that economists use to uh, thinking about individuals. Uh, there are various programs available for doing that. One of them is neuroeconomics. Um, Pico-economics is another one. Uh, I think the Pico-economic insights have consistently been more interesting and promising than the neuroeconomic ones. Pico-economics, the, the word, the concept, and indeed the, the fundamental insights come from the, uh, the American psychiatrist and research psychiatrist, George Ainsley. Um, and Ainsley's more informed by psychology and psychiatry than he is by economics. Um, he really just borrowed some very general economic concepts, particularly concepts from game theory, and uh, applied them to think about the motivational conflicts that arise within a person. So the fundamental insight there is just this. Uh, when you do focus on the individual as an agent, one of the things you quickly have to recognize <coughs> is that as an information processing system, that agent is very, very, very complicated. Our brains are, from an analytical point of view, massive. Right? There are 13 trillion human brain. Uh, that's a bigger number than, than cosmologists deal with when they're thinking about stars and galaxies. Mm -hmm. right? It's a huge number. There's an awful lot going on in that thing in your head. Um, and, of course, given how much information it processes in real time, it, it didn't take very much computer science to realize that it can't possibly be processing that information in a centralized, sequential way. Right? If your brain uh, processed everything as if it were a problem in logic to be decomposed and then solved step by step, if that's how your brain worked, what you would be is a kind of walking Soviet Union, right? That is, and you would fail for the same reason it did, right? You'd, you'd simply be incapable of responding with any level of adequate efficiency to any real problem. Mm -hmm. So we know that of the human brain, and for that matter, the mouse brain, um, works by radically decentralizing its information processing. When lots of things are going on simultaneously. 
just as a human uh, national economy or a fir big firms uh, uh, processes can only work through um, decentralization and division of labor, the brain also must divide labor. Um, some parts of your brain are busy on one sort of problem and other parts of your brain are adapted to, to other parts of problems. Um, but there's no central coordinator in your brain, just as there isn't a central coordinator in a market economy. Uh, there are all these specialists working away. They somehow have to stay coordinated, uh, but there's no body to coordinate them. Right? They're not coordinated by having a, you know, a chief executive. Uh, well, so how does it get sorted out? Basically the same way it gets sorted out in a market. Uh, there's implicit value being computed by those different systems, and those values are just realized in the returns and rewards that come to the systems as, it, as separate parts and the system as a whole that they compose. Um, so it's market you can use the model of market dynamics to explain a lot of the way in which interests in your brain, different possibility spaces opened by the activities of different subparts of you as a person, um, the, the, the way in which they are coordinated and often fail to coordinate, um, you, can, you can understand that using the conceptual resources of economics. Let's be careful about how much you're understanding. You're not going to understand everything about a person that way. You wouldn't be trying to. You're trying, you, you know, you won't, un, you won't understand, for example, the biochemistry of emotion that way. But that's a huge part of understanding human behavior. You won't uh, understand the way visual perception works that way. But that's a huge part of, uh, of, of, of human's psychology. But you will understand the thing. You, you can use those concepts. You can use those models to understand the kinds of things those models were built to furnish understanding of. Namely, how do you get apparent unified value, like system-wide prices, uh, out of a bunch of value computations that are all distributed across the, through, throughout the system and that don't have any central, central command uh, 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 bottleneck? Um, you can understand... Um, how the system manages to stay coherent in general, even while it's often incoherent in detail, just as a market is. In other words, you can understand the properties of the brain that are market-like. Not all, all properties of the brain are market-like, but some of them are. And where they are, economics is the economic modeling is the technology to reach for. That's George Ainsley's insight. He particularly applied it to understand addiction, and he applied it to addiction because addiction is a particular, particularly puzzling phenomenon from the point of view of an emphasis on agency. Right? Ad addiction seems to be a case where our agency gets away from us. Um, so, um, and but but addiction is by no means the only phenomenon that it can be applied to. We've applied it to procrastination. Um, uh, we've applied it to. Um, uh, generally to ambivalence that people display about their preferences, right? People who, on the one hand, seem to have a very strong preference for a stable domestic life 
and at the same time a strong preference for blowing that domestic stability up, and so on, right? All of these forms of ambivalence. Um, that's picoeconomics. Again, it's. I think it will, to, to, to repeat what I said earlier, I don't think picoeconomics will ever be a central part of economics. I don't think economists in general need to engage with it. Um, but if some part of an, econo of an economist's problem crucially trades on how individuals work, that's not usually the case. But if it, when that does arise, read picoeconomics. Mm -hmm. Okay, so now uh, I would like to ask you to please tell us a little bit about the work that you and some of your colleagues have done uh, on the mechanisms of addiction uh, and its relation with the decision-making processes that go into it from uh, from an economics uh, approach. Because, I, I mean, perhaps, uh, and I'm not sure if this is correct or not, and please tell me if, if it's not, but perhaps when uh, in psychology, and in this case in particular in clinical psychology, people have this approach of uh, pathologizing certain sets of behavior, perhaps that approach leads them to miss certain important aspects uh, of how people uh, develop those behaviors. And, and I, I, again, I'm not sure if I'm saying something right here or not, but... Good. So let me come at it this way. Uh, I would certainly assent to the idea that addiction is a pathology in, in general. Um, in the sense, addiction is a quite serious public health problem. Uh, that is, it has lots and lots of very severe negative welfare consequences for people for and, and, and households. Mm -hmm. um, also, it's just a fact that most addicts are quite unhappy. Mm -hmm. uh, and most addicts wish they had not been addicted. Most addicts, it's important to note, solve their problem eventually. And most addicts solve their problem by themselves. That is, without clinical assistance. Although, I say by themselves. I mean, without clinical assistance, most addicts do depend very much on, on the help and support of their intimate, uh, of their families and friends. Uh, it's actually quite difficult to solve your addiction problem literally, truly by yourself, but upwards of 70% of addicts recover without any help from the medical establishment or the counseling establishment. But lots of unhappiness along the way. Uh, Lots of loss. So it's a problem, um, and, a, and a quite big one. Uh, now, you, when you talk about the... Sometimes when, when we complain about the pathologizing of addiction, what we really mean is, is we are worried about the tendency in clinical sciences to model addiction as if it were a classical disease. That is, as if... It represented the malfunctioning of the brain or some part of the brain. Okay. Um, now, I do think there's some legitimate grounds for concern there. Uh, I think it's a fair thing to say, a broadly true thing to say, that in the case of addiction, the part of the brain, or the processes in the brain that are most directly implicated are not actually malfunctioning. 
-hmm. Addiction results from the reward system of the brain, a very old part of the brain that we share with all vertebrates. Addiction results from that part of the brain functioning just as nature designed it to do under circumstances that evolution could not anticipate. That is, under circumstances that we have ourselves set up in the world that create traps for that system. And that's, you know, we're vulnerable to addiction basically because our ancestors were not really much at risk of it. They couldn't, they didn't have enough control over their environment to be able to create the conditions where they could, where that vulnerability in the design of the reward system could be exploited. So basically addicts are, as to a first approximation anyway, they're people with normally functioning reward systems uh, that have been uh, drawn into or dragged into a kind of learning trap where then as a result of the way the system normally functions, they get stuck. Um, and among the things that you need to do to unstick them is you've got typically to change their environment. I mean, one of the most important kinds of therapy uh, for those addicts who do come for help is you need, you, there's various things you must do, but one thing you must do is you've got to change their environment. As long as they stay, as long as they, the environment they're trying to learn about and derive, and derive reward from um, continues to have the properties that trigger the addiction, they will keep relapsing. They'll keep falling back into that, that trap. Mm -hmm. So, would you say that perhaps when people refer to certain alterations that occur in the brain in terms of the levels of certain neurotransmitters and hormones and the activation of certain areas in, that do not activate in normal, in normal people or vice versa, that those things are not really the crux of the issue or perhaps they derive from the fact that people are exposed to certain environmental cues, mostly? Yeah, well, so I'm, I'm not suggesting that they aren't, in some sense, the crux of the issue. So uh, an, an, an addict, someone who is, who is sort of full, fully addicted, whether to nicotine or to heroin or to cocaine or to gambling, someone who's actually reached the full, the fully mature stage of addiction, uh, that is a person in whom certain neuroadaptations have occurred. That is, there have been transformations in their brains. Quite specifically, what's happening is um, certain chemical signals from frontal cortex that usually prevent the old midbrain system, the dopamine system in the midbrain, from directly uh, triggering motor preparation, from directly preparing the body to consume, those blocking signals aren't happening. So as soon as the person, the addict, uh, is given any kind of cue for lighting up a cigarette or, um, or pouring another drink, um, as soon as they get any cue that reminds them of that, they will immediately experience a visceral uh, urge that is their whole body will go into consumption preparation uh, mode and the, the what is really uh, anhedonic about addiction what makes addiction kind of miserable the, the worst part of it for the actual addict is because their body is constantly being set into these uh, hyper alert states for consumption of their addictive target 
they find it very difficult to focus on anything else, right? The worst thing about addiction is the way the addiction crowds out the rest of the addict's life. Um, you know, with certain addictions, it, certain addictions that can be coped with. Smoking is an easy addiction to cope with compared to the others, though it's very, very dangerous to health. But smoking is an easy addiction to cope with because basically you can smoke and do other things at the same time. Um, that's why smokers smoke all the time. Right? And that's why smokers particularly need to smoke when they have to concentrate on something, right? Because uh, they the only way to keep that that urge to smoke from crowding out whatever it is they want to concentrate on is to be smoking, right? And so smokers famously smoke more and smoke more the more harder they work or the more they're concentrating. And you know, it's a smoker who's doing some who's writing a hard letter or a difficult letter or who's uh, uh, or who's got a big report to do will smoke more than normal, um, and that's why. So, um, and of course, most of the things that people get addicted to, like alcohol and cocaine and gambling, uh, are not things you can easily do while you concentrate on other things. So, and then of course, there's the fact that also addictive uh, substances tend to be medically harmful, nicotine especially. Well, not nicotine, actually. It's smoke. It's it's, t it's tobacco that's harmful. Uh, anyway, sorry. Now, where were we? Remind me of the question we were. Oh, uh, uh, am I that's am I arguing that addiction is not a, a condition of the brain? It is a condition of the brain. What I was trying to emphasize before is, it doesn't result from some organ in the brain uh, being damaged in some way. Or, uh, be, or, or, or responding in a way that it isn't supposed to. Addiction represents the exercise of perfectly normal reward learning, but about some ways of getting reward that were not available to our ancestors. Mm -hmm. think one, here's one, one way to think about it. Uh, that I think is another story which is good for illustrating what I'm getting at. Uh, in Africa, there are some trees, marula trees, where every now and then uh, the berries ferment while they're still on the vines of the trees instead of only after falling to the ground. Mm -hmm. When that happens, the berries are not poisonous as they normally would be, uh, but they're fermented. So uh, you, you so an animal eating them can get drunk. Right. When various animals come across um, the berries in that state, for example, baboons, under some circumstances, perhaps elephants, but uh, some birds, particularly baboons are a good case. When baboons come across that, baboons have a party. But the baboons show no particular restraint, as many of the berries as they can, and they and they get falling, they, and quite dangerous. It's, Dangerous to be a drunk baboon, right? You have predators, uh, right? You really don't want a leopard coming along while you're drunk sure. if you're a baboon. So they're taking some risks. They're having a good time, quite clearly. Baboons, if baboons could plant marula trees, if baboons could treat the planted marula trees in ways that encourage the berries to ferment on the vine, baboons would have an addiction problem. Mm -hmm. Right, their brains aren't misfunctioning when they have a party. Um, they're 
that's that's they're, they're, they have they, they, they've discovered an opportunity. Their brains learn about the opportunity. Their brains deliver behavior that exploits the opportunity. Right? It's a happy day for baboons. Um, they would only get into trouble if they could control the environment in such a way that they can constantly be presenting themselves with that opportunity. And then their brains would not have a defense, a natural, have no natural defense against over-exploiting that opportunity they've created. Now, of course, we are like those baboons who have been able to plant marula trees, who can uh, treat the marula trees in such a way as to constantly produce the, um, the, 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 the party. Um, and then we, our brains do not have natural defenses to prevent us from over-exploiting those opportunities, and so that's what a lot of people do. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's a very interesting example. And so perhaps just two more questions. And now before we finish, I would like to circle all the way back to the beginning of our conversation. And I think that it's very interesting that we've just talked about different approaches to the same set of behaviors here, in this case addiction, because, uh, I mean, in order for us to understand the world, we always have to rely on certain models of it. I mean, we can't really take into account, and and now I've talked about circling all the way back because I'm referring again to the naturalistic approach. But I mean, when we create models of the world, we necessarily have to exclude certain aspects, and some of them perhaps are even causally relevant, that we still don't know of, or perhaps are too complex to compute in, or we don't have the the necessary technology to do it yet. So, I, I mean, these are also things, and it doesn't matter if we're doing mathematical modeling or other type of modeling, these are also things that we have to take into account as limitations to this epistemological approach, correct? That's absolutely right. I mean, one of the reasons why I say there's no such thing as the scientific method, right? There's no, you can't, science, you can't do science as if um, it's a cookbook, right? That is, you can't find recipes that you just have to follow and boom, then you'll deliver the epistemic pay dirt. The reason is that there's a fundamental tension in modeling. Modeling isn't something incidental to science. Modeling is science. That's, 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 if, you, if you want one, one generalization about what science is that you can fit on the t-shirt, that's a pretty good one. Science is modeling. Uh, to see why that's so, uh, I'll describe for you one model of the universe it is guaranteed to be the true model. The universe. Right? The universe is guaranteed to be the true model of itself. Right? Right. That doesn't get us anything epistemically. Right? We only achieve any epistemic purpose in understanding that universe by simplifying. That is by extracting right, certain aspects and identifying those as causal relationships that are worth paying attention to or being the systems 
that when we understand them, help us understand other things. Right? All of science involves trying to pull certain features, certain process, cer certain relations out of the background into the foreground and focusing them on them in isolation. Right? All explanation, all, um, all attempt to discover generalizations, it always involves artificially isolating some parts of a system and backgrounding the rest. So there's a kind of deep irony here. Uh, to gain truth, you always have to engage judiciously in a bit of falsehood, right? because it's false that those other things really are in the background. From the point of view of the objective nature of the universe, there's no background and foreground. That only arises for a perspective. That only arises for somebody who's for, for somebody regarding or representing that system. So we judiciously engage in misrepresentation uh, in order to try and arrive at better, more powerful, true representation. Because the world is structured in the different parts of the world and the different um, dimensions of the world are structured in very different ways, the kind of modeling that works in one case will be very different from the kind of modeling that works in another case. Science is very much an art. It's very much a craft. It's very much something one has to learn in part by doing. Right? Hence my emphasis on don't think you can set it out like a cookbook. Um, so the happy scientist is a scientist who has learned not to be anxious about the fact that modeling is what they do. Who's learned uh, to be comfortable with the fact that all of her models are misrepresentations in some sense. Of course, she'll be the best scientist, or she'll be a better scientist to the extent that she's self-aware right, of the fact that that's what her models are doing. So that she reminds herself at each stage of modeling that there's a bunch of factors that she's put into the background and she'll be a better scientist to the extent that she's always prepared to reach into that background and pull some of those things into the foreground when she gets reason to believe that she made a mistake or that she and of course science is not pursued by i'm talking about she and her as if it's an individual science is done by communities so it's the scientific community that will recognize at some stages that it's time to change the modeling approach um it's not even necessarily the case that these are always involved correcting mistakes. Uh, take the history of physics. Uh, Newton put almost everything into the background when he derived his laws of gravitation, theory of gravitation. Right. Uh, he focused on an extremely narrow set of relationships and then basically pretended that that extremely narrow set of relationships was the fundamental set of relationships for absolutely everything. So it was a very, very extreme and severe uh, simplification. Uh, what resulted was the most, you know, one of the most powerful scientific models ever devised. Indeed, it was, that was the scientific sort of model that motored the creation of all the others. Um, later, right, we realized that simplification is just wrong. It's useful for certain purposes, for certain engineering purposes, but it's really, that's just not true physics at all, 
right? We, the, 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 the changes that had to be made by Einstein and by the quantum physicists um, uh, weren't just minor modifications on Newton. They were a replacement, uh, a generalization, but really fundamentally a, a new thing entirely. And uh, but it's not like we said, oh, that was a mistake, right? Old Newton, right? We had to correct that. We had to fix that. No, thank goodness Newton did that. Um, we never would have got where we are now if that had probably if that hadn't been been done first. Um, so that's another reason why science will never end. Science will never end because there's no we have no reason to think that there's any such thing as a final, ultimate, best way of modeling everything. Right when you very often in science, when you improve your modeling approach to some phenomena, you pay a cost in sort of losing your grip on the best modeling approach to some other phenomena. There's a lot of trade-offs of that kind. Um, if, you, if you are somebody who thinks that either science must, must be converging on an ultimate truth or it's no good or it's useless, well then um, you're going to be disappointed. Uh, but a happy attitude to science is one that takes joy in the fact um, that it will go on forever. Mm -hmm. And going on forever is great. Learning is the most fun, one of the most fun things that a person can do. And collective learning, learning together, uh, is one of the most joyful ways in which we can uh, relate as people. So it's wonderful to be a scientist. Um, and that's why. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay, so just one last question, uh, and because this also interests me personally. So we've been talking about throughout the entire interview, uh, basically about how uh, science is not really in terms of approach and in terms of modeling, at least yet, uh, a, a unified thing. But, and perhaps at different levels of analysis, we need different sorts of modeling. But I mean, but I mean at the same time, we've, uh, you, at a certain point, you also refer to the fact that uh, it should be important for us to have at least a certain uh, continuity between the sciences. Perhaps here we could use the term that E.O. That e. Wilson coined consilience, that, that I think he referred there to the unity of, of, of all the sciences from the social sciences uh, and, and even down to physics, I guess, that, that, he, that he was referring to all the sciences there in terms of unity and continuity. But uh, does, does this tell us, does this tell us, uh, something about uh, how to solve the contentious uh, discussion between uh, the reductionists and the emergentists? Because, I mean, I've already talked with a lot of philosophers and scientists about this issue, and uh, I, I mean, it's... Uh, uh, it's very difficult for us to imagine that we can, for example, extract uh, laws of social behavior from laws of physics, for example, or to predict how people behave based 
on the interaction of particles at the, at the atomic level or something like that. But on the other hand, uh, emergentism seems to have a particular issue with it, that is the fact that uh, it seems to leave out certain aspects because uh, it doesn't refer to how we get from one place to another and, and uh, at a certain point in the discussion it seems that people are referring to some spooky things that go around there somewhere but uh, on the other hand it could also be that those spooky things are just uh, the knowledge that we lack so I, I mean I, I'm not sure if if I if I was able to articulate this correctly, but anyway, if you could comment on it. So I think that a lot of the controversy and confusion around reductionism arises from people uh, assimilating or running together two different senses of reduction. So on the one hand. Um, theories sometimes approximately reduce other theories. That is, sometimes you see that two theories are talking about very similar processes, but one of the theories is maybe talking about those processes in a more elegant or a more compressed way, in which case you might say that that more elegant, more compressed theory reduces the other theory. If we're at the level of models, right, we can say the same thing. And those models might be of different domains. Uh, I was just reading some recent work a couple of days ago in which some uh, some physicists are think that they've got an explanation or the beginning of an explanation of why neural networks, the sorts that our brains instantiate and that we are now learning to build in AI systems, these physicists, they've got an explanation of why they are so surprisingly efficient. Um, and the explanation involves recognizing commonalities between the models that neural networks instantiate and the models the physicists think characterize the basic structure of, 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 of quantum reality. Right. Now, they're not reducing, but notice what in what sense that is a reduction. They're not saying uh, we understand brains by breaking them down into their constituent particles. That's not what's going on. It's a they're recognizing a structural analogy between the models the neural networks represent and the models that the physicists use of quantum phenomena. And they're recognizing that that isomorphism, that, that common structure, provides an explanation. Notice there's an asymmetry. They're not trying to explain the physics by reference to the neural networks. They're trying to explain the neural networks by reference to the physics. Right. But that doesn't mean that that asymmetry need not reflect some metaphysical hunch to the effect that ultimately there's nothing to a brain except chemicals, and there's nothing to the chemicals except subatomic particles. Story then about the subatomic particles. There'd be no need to do the chemistry or no need to do the neuroscience. Right? That's not, that doesn't follow. Physics has nothing, in the language of physics, there are no neurons. In the language of physics, um, 
there are uh, there are no hopes and dreams. There are no emotions. There are no different kinds of brain structures. Right? Physics can't see that level that that scale of of generalization, and it isn't trying to. Um, and you cannot explain. You will not explain what a neuron does by pretending that the neuron is just a glued together bunch of subatomic particles. Um, first a bunch of atoms, and then those atoms are a bunch of gluten. That's just not, the universe isn't, reality is not composed additively. It's not composed by just adding up a lot of little things uh, and getting you know, some big things. Um, so that kind of reduction, once in a while in the history of science, you see progress made by that kind of decomposition, but it's unusual. Uh, it arises only under very special and occasional circumstances. It's very, very, very far indeed from the general way we make progress in science. But we very, very often make progress in science by searching for structural level isomorphisms between different phenomena, by recognizing that we can build similar kinds of models and we can transfer insights from one class of models over to another. And finally, there's the asymmetry to come back to. I said, well, we explain the neuroscience in terms of the physics, not the other way around. Why? Not because we think that physics is trying to provide an ultimately complete account of everything, mm -hmm. but rather, physics is just the science. It, physics is our class of scientific models that apply most generally. That is, compare physics with biology. Compare fundamental physics, anyway, with biology. So, right, quantum physics, let's say. Mm -hmm. Quantum physical models apply everywhere in the universe. Biological models, as far as we now know, apply only for a part of the history of one planet. Right. The biological models are very special quantum physical models are very very general so when they conflict right, if you have a conflict between the physical model the very general one and the very special model the biological one it's the biological model you adjust not you don't need to justify that by saying well it's because all the biological things are made out of little physical things Right. Well, you could say that, but it's false, so you shouldn't. And and what you know, what you're not forced there. There's lots of other things you can say instead. And one of the things you can say instead is all the biological systems, as a matter of fact, evolved within constraints. They evolved. They evolved within the constraints that the special world had to be part of the general world, and the general world is the world that's described by fundamental physics. So, of course, the special system has to be compatible with, right? It has to um, be coherent with, consistent with, um, that more general picture. And that's why, right, when you, that's why we explain biology in terms of physics sometimes, but we never explain physics in terms of biology. Um, again, not because of reduction, not because we think the one thing is made of the other thing, um, but because those are the hierarchical relationships among our models which we recognize only when we transcend the division of labor 
and say, hey, we live in a world where the generalizations of biology hold, and the generalizations of physics also hold. Mm -hmm. What kind of world is that? Now we're doing philosophy. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. So, Don, just before we go, would you like just to tell people, uh, apart from your books, what are some of the, of the best places on the internet if they want to uh, get in touch with more of your work? Oh, gee, well, uh, they, of course, my own website um, uh, is academia.edu. Most of my recent, uh, uh, most of my recent working papers, including you know, so, so what I have there, are um, versions of papers prior to their publication. So publishers generally will not let you post on your own website the final published version of a paper because they hold the rights to that and they want to sell those things. Um, but they will let you publish a, a version of the text that is identical. It's just not formatted and paginated and typeset, you know, by the journal, but it, it was the version that the journal accepted. So those papers are available on my website. Um, something we haven't much touched on in this interview, a lot of the current work that I'm doing is experimental work associated with risk preferences. Uh, and that work is done in company with a team uh, of other researchers. Uh, based out mainly at what we're we're organized as the Center for Economic Analysis of Risk. Um, if listeners who are interested in that side of our work, the experimental work on risk preferences, can find a wealth of our group's working papers at the SEER website. So that's C-E-A-R. Um, there's at least one other organization called SEER, so make sure if you're looking for the SEER website that, that uh, it's got risk in the title. <laughs> okay, okay. So I will be leaving links to all of that in the description box of this video. And so, Don, again, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. It was really a pleasure to everyone. And uh, as you said, we didn't really have the time to touch on other aspects of your work. So perhaps in the future, if you like, we could have another conversation. That would be that would be great. Um, I uh, thanks very much for the interview. Uh, you asked great questions and it was a pleasure uh, answering them. I hope uh, your listeners were able to follow at least some of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure they did. OK, thank you. Hi everybody, thank you a lot for watching this interview until the end and also by the way for coming to my channel. Uh, as you might have noticed, I've started this channel in February 2018 and have been putting out regular interviews with academics and intellectuals from a variety of fields. To keep this channel sustainable, I would like to ask you to please visit my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge. Any amount, even if just $1, would already be a great help. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Perelga Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Chantel Gelina, Jim Frank, Francis Ford and Hans Frederick Sunda. Thank you for all.